Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020 and its potential impact on the commodities industries. My name's Emma Skakel, I'm a partner at Stevenson Harwood. I specialise in commodities and shipping disputes. I'm joined by Ian Benjamin, also a partner at Stevenson Harwood. Ian is an insolvency expert and advises clients on all aspects of restructuring and insolvency matters. Welcome Ian, thank you for joining me. Thanks Emma, thanks for having me. So our discussion today follows on from an article that I co-authored with one of our associates on some of the specific changes to the UK insolvency law that have come about and been introduced by this Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act. The article was first published in our December edition of our Commodities in Focus Bulletin, and if you would like to access that, it's available on our website. So in this podcast, Ian and I are going to discuss a little bit about the background to the Act and the main changes that have been introduced by it. We'll look at the impact of the Act on those involved in the sale and purchase of commodities. We'll consider a little bit about the extent to which foreign companies might be able to rely on the Act. And then finally, we're going to close with some practical considerations um, in light of these changes. So Ian, would you briefly explain why these changes have been deemed necessary? What's the government seeking to achieve through them? Thanks, Emma. Um, This legislation, uh, SEGA, as it's known in short, was brought in in 2020 in quite short order um, and it provides for a combination of things. There were measures brought in to assist companies struggling uh, with the pandemic uh, and those measures continue to apply but it also brought in some fundamental changes to UK insolvency law which have been along the lines of corporate insolvency reform um, and that were consulted upon by um, the insolvency service and the government back in 2018 and in fact a lot of what's been brought in and some of these new regimes were intended to reinvigorate the rescue culture is how the government put it and there's an element of political pressure as well as sort of practical reasons why these have come to fruition um the uk at the time was i think ranked 14th in the uh, world rankings uh, for doing business uh, and they were a bit upset about that the government because there were some surprising countries well ahead of the uk uh, the likes of puerto rico iceland finland and so on who were deemed to be sort of more debtor friendly and the conservative party has always uh, looked at business as a key aspect and therefore wanted to push the UK up the chart and it was hoped and felt that these new um, insolvency processes we'll talk about in a minute uh, would hopefully bring that about and that's the plan behind it. Uh, The proof of course will be in the pudding. Some of these measures are designed to be I guess, a bit more practical uh, and hopefully will try and turn, um, I think, what the UK would like to be uh, is a bit more debtor friendly and a bit similar to some of the US uh, bankruptcy regimes that you see under Chapter 11. Right. And um, I understand that some of the changes are permanent, some are temporary to do with COVID-19. So could you maybe explain to us the main changes, which of those are permanent, which are temporary? Sure, sure. Um, So the temporary measures, the key ones that are relevant, uh, certainly to people in in trade, uh, are a combination of of three things. One is the suspension of wrongful trading, which protects uh, directors when transacting in what's known as the twilight period. So when a company might be in financial difficulty, uh, directors have to be mindful of protecting creditors' interests. 
Now, of course, directors shouldn't change that approach. They should always be mindful of their stakeholders and their creditors when they are potentially in a difficult period of trading. However, directors may not be personally liable in the same way that they were under the usual wrongful trading regime. Uh, that is only temporary uh, and that will expire, I believe, actually in April uh, rather than March. Uh, but we'll wait and see what happens because obviously these temporary measures are subject to change at all times. The other key temporary measure was the um, the suspension or the inability, should we say, uh, to present statutory demands and winding up petitions. And what that means for creditors is that you can't actually present a winding up petition at the moment uh, until the end of March this year, unless you can show that the coronavirus had not had a financial effect on the debtor that made it unable to pay its debts. So if, for example, um, you can't evidence that, then the court will not allow you to bring your petition. So now you're seeing creditors have to apply to court just for permission to issue a winding up petition. Um, so that slowed things down at the moment and the courts are mainly dealing with people trying to do that. Uh, and obviously some are failing and some are succeeding and it all turns on the facts. But those measures continue to be in force and were extended just before Christmas uh, until the end of March this year. And there is expectation that obviously they could be extended again if the lockdown continues and business isn't recovering in the way that the government perhaps hopes. Um, those are obviously the short term measures. Um, the permanent measures are, are two quite... Um, or three rather critical areas of, uh, of law. And two of them go to this rescue culture plan, which the government has. Um, the first is the introduction of a moratorium as a separate regime. Um, and this is, I guess, similar to what you might call a debtor in possession proceeding that people might be familiar with in the US and other jurisdictions. And the idea of this moratorium is it gives a company that's in financial difficulty that perhaps needs to save itself in some form or another, the statutory breathing space to do so. And to to formulate some sort of rescue plan. That rescue plan, though, can't end with an insolvency process. So the company should only be putting itself into that moratorium regime with a view to exiting via some sort of um, rescue plan that doesn't involve an insolvency process. The moratorium in this case is 20 business days and can be extended with consent in certain circumstances from secured or unsecured creditors. The idea during that moratorium is the company is supervised by a monitor, so an insolvency practitioner, similar to the way a CVA is supervised by an insolvency practitioner. And the monitor just keeps an eye on that process. What happens in reality is the company is given a payment holiday um, and doesn't have to pay certain debts during that period. However, those certain debts don't include, or rather don't exclude, uh, financial products. So, for example, you've got to continue to service your debt during that period, which may prove challenging for some companies. And obviously, we'll come on to um, who else is eligible but uh, it, when we talk about overseas companies, but this is open to all uh, companies incorporated in England and Wales, and it's a fairly simple process to, to implement. Haven't seen very many. I'm only aware of one which ultimately failed uh, and ended up going to administration. So we'll have to wait and see um, how effective these will be over time. Uh, the second larger one, which is um, a sort of quasi-insolvency process known as a restructuring plan. Um, that was also introduced. That's gone into the Companies Act. And that's sort of like a super scheme of arrangement. And the two big differences on this compared to a scheme of arrangement is that it allows a company to cram down across different classes of creditors. So you can have senior creditors being potentially crammed down by junior creditors if the scenario arises. Um, it, again, it's a 
court-based process um, with a lot of flexibility. It's going to be very popular for large companies seeking to restructure. And the other test involves creditors and shareholders with no genuine economic interest in the company not being given a right to vote and can be compromised by the plan. Uh, the two big names that have used these so far, and bear in mind the act only came in you know, towards the end of the middle of last year, are Pizza Express and Virgin. Uh, so two fairly large companies with significant debt uh, and complex debt structures. Um, so they've used them already and we'll see how much that carries on in future. The final area uh, which came in, uh, the final clause which came in, was the um, concept of restricting termination of supply contracts. And that is also known as the ipso facto clauses. And I know that's obviously a key one uh, for the areas that we're talking about today, Emma, so you may want to pick up on that further. Um, Yeah, exactly. So this is a provision under Section 14 of SEGA, and it introduces two new sections and a new schedule to the Insolvency Act, which restrict the use of these so-called ipso facto clauses in contracts. So these are clauses that allow a party to terminate or modify the operation of a contract upon the occurrence of certain events of default, such as a a counterparty's insolvency or a restructuring, for example. So under this restriction, a supplier's contractual right to terminate on the grounds of insolvency is essentially switched off as from the date of a relevant insolvency procedure. So if rights have arisen to terminate, but you haven't exercised those and then your buyer goes into a a, a relevant insolvency procedure, you've lost your right as a supplier to then terminate um, your contract from that date. So this sort of switch off of these rights also applies to any contractual rights that a supplier may have to do what is called in the Act any other thing, so something other than terminating, due to the company entering into this relevant insolvency procedure. So two questions probably immediately arise from that. The first is, what is a relevant insolvency procedure? And the second is, what is any other thing? So Ian, perhaps you can help us with the first. What will be classified as a relevant insolvency procedure for the purposes of this clause? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's unfortunate. Relevant insolvency procedure has the wonderful acronym of RIP. Um, but yes, the RIPs uh, in, in this situation are the usual ones that you'd expect. So administration, liquidation, provisional liquidation, uh, company voluntary arrangement and as a CVA, administrative receivership, and also now the two new regimes introduced under SEGA being the moratorium and the restructuring plan. So no surprises there. No, brilliant. Thanks, Ian. So the second question is a bit more opaque. Um, That is, what is any other thing? So what are the things that a supplier is not allowed to do once uh, the buyer or company has entered into this RIP? So perhaps unsurprisingly, there's no definition in SEGA. But the government explanatory notes has given one example, and that's that changing payment terms will be prohibited. Other things we think are likely to be included are increases in interest rates in your contract, changing your terms of supply or perhaps accelerating payment. Um, Perhaps more importantly or more interestingly for a lot of our listeners is that there are quite wide ranging exemptions to this uh, restriction on ipso facto clauses, which will mean essentially that you can rely on those clauses still. Now, there is a class of companies that are exempted and they include insurers and banks, just being two examples. But there are also types of contracts that are excluded and those include financial contracts. And financial contracts is defined to include commodities contracts. 
Now, you'll have to look carefully in the definition in SIGA to see whether your particular contract falls within this. But it includes a contract for the purchase, sale or loan of a commodity for future delivery. There's no definition of commodity, um, but we think it will be sort of fungible goods. So the types of commodities that, you know, we advise in relation to being, you know, wheat, corn, if you're looking at agricultural commodities or coal, oil and gas are very likely to be considered commodities. There's also an exemption for spot contracts and there's also a temporary exclusion, which I believe has been extended till the end of March for small suppliers. So you may fall within one of these um, exemptions such that you can still rely on your termination provisions and your ipso facto clauses. One thing that probably won't be exempt and that does come into the whole sphere of international trade and that you are likely to be dealing with is contracts of carriage. So charter parties, contracts of affreightment, these are likely to be considered services and therefore they won't necessarily fall within the exemption. So you just need to be very careful to understand when you will and won't be exempt. Unfortunately, it hasn't, we haven't seen um, many examples of this being tested yet, and there may then be further sort of clarifications to the legislation. But for now, uh, you need to look at Section 14 to see whether you may be exempt. And in terms of whether you will be able to rely on SIGA at all, whether we're talking now about Section 14 or just generally, you need an understanding of uh, whether it applies to your company. And Ian's going to explain a bit more about that, if you wouldn't mind, Ian. Sure. It's also worth touching on your last point around examining your um, your contract to make to, to sort of understand whether you're going to be able to terminate it or not. In reality, as you know, the, the purpose of this clause and protecting the debtor is designed to allow it to continue to trade to be rescued. And in most circumstances, office holders appointed to those companies are looking to cut deals with people. They are going to be commercial because they want to continue supply and they more importantly want to have a business that can then trade on the other side. So there will always be a balancing act, which is why you don't often see a lot of case law on the legislation, even pre-SEGA. Uh, obviously, I'm sure SEGA will lead to some, some case law inevitably as people interpret the act. But that's probably one of the reasons why it doesn't get as far as reported cases. As regards sort of the ability to use it, I guess the, the critical point here is to talk about overseas companies and and they will be eligible to use the moratorium uh, for example uh, if they need to provided there's sufficient connection to the united kingdom now that's a test which the english courts are very familiar with from in the context of schemes arrangement which you mentioned earlier under the companies act and that can usually be founded on the basis the company has assets in the uk or uh, some other connections such as the debt that's relevant to the company is governed by English law. Um, in reality, this question of sufficient connection is purely fact sensitive. So there's no sort of, you know, um, simple answer. It'll always turn on the facts. And actually, it, it remains to be seen as to whether the sufficient connection test will be applied by the courts to the new moratorium in the same way it's been applied to date in processes also requiring such connections, such as schemes. The court retains a discretion as to whether to grant a moratorium to overseas companies and the court's likely going to want to know whether that moratorium is going to be recognised overseas before it bothers to um, effectively grant it. If it's going to be ignored by other jurisdictions, uh, then it's less likely to be deemed appropriate. And that kind of leads us on to, I guess, the impact of Brexit as a whole on insolvency legislation which would take up an entire other podcast uh, if we had time. So I won't uh, uh, bore your listeners any more on that. But uh, suffice to say that 
for inbound companies, so companies seeking recognition uh, from Europe in the UK, uh, they can obviously continue to use the cross-border insolvency regulations, which are in statutes. However, for UK companies looking uh, for recognition or assistance in Europe, I guess the, the, the horizon is not clear. Uh, it's a bit murky at the moment. It's uncertain. It's going to involve a combination of applying sort of uh, model law under the United Nations regulations and also local law in each jurisdiction. So it's not clear. And that's a, a watch this space for the moment. Brilliant. Thank you, Ian. Um, so moving into the final section of this podcast, we thought it might be helpful to close with sort of practical tips, recommendations for what companies might want to consider, either when they're entering into new contracts now, or whether they want to be looking at their existing contracts um, and ensuring that they are sufficiently up to date and that they um, incorporate or refer to the relevant terms um, of the new act. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's a critical point here that you ensure your contracts are up to date. And I know it's something that in-house lawyers obviously naturally will, will spend time on, but it can get sometimes put to the bottom of the pile. And that includes particularly updating your insolvency termination provisions. And, you know, you won't be surprised to hear in the past that, you know, we've been asked to look at clauses uh, that, in fact, don't even contemplate administration as an insolvency process. And that's been around since 1986. So um, it is worth taking the time to take a look at your pro forma agreements, check they include the existing legislation and more importantly, the new stuff that's come in. And this is sort of regardless of whether your contract's going to fall within the exemption that we've talked about for restrictions on termination of, uh, of supply contracts. Because, for example, you want the ability to terminate if the company goes into a moratorium or a restructuring plan, which are the new uh, regimes brought in by SEGA. So it's, uh, it's an easy win uh, for you when looking at your existing contracts. Yeah, I agree with that. And another thing you might want to consider if you are, you know, revising or looking again at your clauses, whether they're in your terms and conditions or whether they're in um, standard clauses which you incorporate into your contracts, is whether the um, termination clause is automatic or elective. So, for example, whether the contract is terminated automatically upon a buyer's insolvency or whether the buyer or the seller has, usually the seller, has an option to terminate the contract on the buyer's insolvency. Now, most contracts will have an option to do that. So they will be elective termination provisions because that just gives a lot more flexibility to the trade and to the seller because they may want to decide um, to continue to supply uh, as long as they're given the relevant assurances by the office holder. So that's just another thing to think about. There are also certain things you can think about if you're a supplier. And, you know, in the event that the Section 14 prohibition applies, so you're in a position where you're not able to terminate your contract, but you want to protect yourself from the buyer's insolvency, what can you do? There are a few things that you can do. An obvious one is enhanced counterparty due diligence. So we're in a situation now, a very unstable you know, um, economic situation where unfortunately insolvency is going to become more common. And so you'll want to ensure that before you enter into a trade, you have properly done your due diligence. You also may want to consider earlier termination triggers. So to give you a bit more flexibility in when you may be able to terminate your contract so that you don't have to wait until the, your buyer has gone insolvent and then potentially be prevented from doing so. So, for example, um, if you have a contract 
for um, instalments. You should make sure that your contract is clearly drafted, that payment is due um, in respect of each instalment. So if the buyer defaults in payment under that instalment, you should be able to terminate your contract. But that relies on very clear drafting. So, you know, it follows from that that you should ensure that your contracts clearly define when a breach occurs that may allow you to terminate your contract. So these are all recommendations for when you're looking at your contracts and entering into new trades, what, what you could do to protect yourself. Uh, and one final point, Emma, which is worth sort of flagging for suppliers generally, uh, when dealing with insolvent companies and making that decision to continue to supply, uh, which is very common, obviously, in the current market, given, the, for example, the number of retailers that are trading uh, whilst in an insolvency process, you should obviously make sure you get direct comfort from that office holder, um, administrator or whatever in this case, that they're going to continue to meet your fees and your costs in respect to supply. Um, and they won't be surprised to, uh, to see you put that on as a an absolute sort of must whilst continuing to trade and it's very common uh, in the current environment and i think that's everything from us today so thank you very much ian for joining us and if you have any questions about the impact of sega on your contracts or if you just have any questions in general on sega please do get in touch with us via the website goodbye mm-hmm.